Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. What is your cat or dog thinking when they make the noise that they can make, sometimes better than us? Understanding animal behavior and what makes them respond in different situations can ensure a good relationship with animals that live with us, whether they are farm stock, pets, or wild animals. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Temple Grandin, a person with autism and a PhD in animal science. She is also the author of Animals Make Us Human, Creating the Best Life for Animals, and Animals in Translation. Autism made school and social life difficult for Temple Grandin, but it made working with and understanding animals easy. In her book, Animals Make Us Human, Dr. Grandin lays out the emotional needs that all animals share and how we, as human beings, can respond to their needs. In this interview, she explains how a cat can be trained to go through a dog's agility course. Also, successful ways for humans to avoid conflict with wild animals and she provides insight on how animal brains and thought processes differ from our own. We visited with Temple Grandin by phone from her home in Fort Collins, Colorado on August 4th, 2009, and began by asking about her experience in observing animal behavior and using her observations in animal training. When I first started working with cattle back in the 70s, uh, handling of cattle out in Arizona feed yards was really bad. People were very rough with cattle. And their tendency would be just to force them through the chutes. And I started observing, and I started noticing that the cattle were afraid of certain things, like a chain hanging down, a shadow, seeing a person, you know, walking up in front. And I found if you got rid of these things, then the cattle would walk through the chute easily. And what I was observing is that most people fail to see these things. Their tendency is to just want to apply more and more force to the cattle. And when I first started working on this, people thought I was really crazy. They just couldn't think about what the cattle were seeing. Uh, They just sort of didn't see it. The shadow was there, but they didn't see the shadow. In fact, even today, I was recently out at a place that was handling beef cattle, and they wanted to build a hydraulic device to shove the beef cattle up the chute. And the beef cattle were afraid of a person that was standing in front of the chute. And I said, no, get the person out of the way. Get all the stuff that, you know, cords and things you've got hanging over the chute. Let's get rid of those things. But it's like they don't see it. So other than being very unkind to the cattle on their way to the chute, does this affect the meat that ends up on the consumer's table? Yes, it does. In fact, there's a study that came out of Australia that shows that if you take electric prods and you poke cattle a bunch of times with electric prods uh, 10 minutes before slaughter, you're going to end up with tougher meat. So tell us about how you develop the process of getting the cattle into the chute in a way that works well for the animal. Well, the first thing I had to do is I had to take the things that were in the chute that the cattle were afraid of and get rid of those things. And many times, it's something very, very simple. 
like don't stand in front of the chute. It's painted maybe different colors. One part of the chute, one color, and another part of the chute's a dark color. They're going to tend to stop wherever there's contrast. Reflections off of water standing on the ground, they'll spook at that. If it's too dark, if it's totally inside a building and it's too dark, they won't go in. You've got to look at what the cattle are seeing visually. Now, I can make checklists, and I have them in Animals in Translation. I've got checklists for people to use so they can go through it verbally. But I'm finding that even with the checklists, you know, that most people have to work hard to see it. Their first response, if the animals refuse to go up the chute, is either to put more force on them or they're going to say, oh, we just have to rebuild the whole entire facility, rather than finding the little details the cattle are afraid of, like the coat on the fence or the yellow hose that's laying across the floor, and the cattle are afraid to walk over the hose. So how do you determine what these details are of the coat or the hose? You watch the cattle. You watch the cattle. And if you bring the cattle up very calmly, they will stop and put their head down and to look at the hose, or they will stop if it's something that's like a person standing in front of the chute. They'll stop and point their eyes and ears right towards the person. If you watch the cattle when they're calm, they will show you the things in the chute that are bothering them. And, and what I have to do is to train people to do that. And then, of course, I take out some of the obvious distractions. Um, I went to one place. The cattle would not come out of the small pen that leads up to the single-file chute, and they wanted to tear up the facility. And all that was wrong is they had a gate that they could open up to let the cattle you know, go up the chute, and that gate jiggled, and the cattle were afraid of the jiggling. And I said, and if you get rid of the gate jiggling, then the cattle will uh, walk right up the chute. In Animals Make Us Human, you talk about the frontal lobes of the human brain, the dog, and the cat brain. In the human brain, 27% is comprised of the frontal lobe. In the dog, you say it's 7%. In the cat, you say it's 3.5%. And you go on to explain that it's the frontal lobe where we formulate plans and ideas and can think into the future. What is the percentage uh, for cattle? Cattle would probably be, you know, 7% or less. You know, they are a highly social animal. Animals that live in groups that are really highly social tend to have a bigger frontal cortex than animals that tend to be more solitary. Now, that doesn't mean that cats are totally solitary. They're not. But, they're, but they are less social than uh, than dogs are. The smaller the frontal lobe, the different kind of training you have to employ, different for cats than for dogs. Well, the thing is, is that a dog will do things just to please you, for praise, for stroking. He, he will do stuff for you just for social rewards. To train a cat, you need to use food motivation. You can train cats to do all kinds of things. One of the best ways to do it is clicker training, where a little clicker you hold in your hand, the sound of that gets paired with he knows he's going to get food. And uh, you can train cats to do all kinds of things uh, with clicker training. But it's food-motivated rather than socially motivated. When you say you can train a cat to do all kinds of things, what would some of them be? Well, you can train it to go through a dog agility course. I'm sure you've seen those dog agility courses where the dog has to go around, has to go over hurdles, go through a tunnel, and you know, climb over a gate, you know, do various things. And you can train a cat to go around that same thing, but you're going to have to use food motivation to do it. It's all in the rewarded behavior by giving them food 
and very little in a forceful disciplinary behavior. No, no, that's not going to work with the cat. It strictly has to be food-motivated, and you have to teach them. Let's say you were training a cat to go through a dog agility course. You'd start out just teaching him to maybe go through this one tunnel, just one part of it. Another method used is target training, where the animal gets a food reward for following a target, which is just a stick with a ball on the end of it. And you can use that to kind of, you know, lead the animal, you know, through parts of the course. But you, you start out just teaching each part of the agility course, you know, at a time, and then you chain the whole thing together using operant conditioning methods. If you're interested in doing that, there's a video called Clicker Magic. I'll tell you exactly how to do it. So the smaller the frontal lobes, the difference in training is? Basically, a dog, which is highly social, will do things for you strictly for social rewards, for stroking, and you want to make sure you stroke your animal. Don't pat it. They interpret patting as hitting. You want to stroke it, make it feel like the mother's tongue, or just for verbal praise. The cat is not going to do it for social rewards. You're going to have to use food. How about language response? What is the vocabulary ability of a dog and a cat? Well, dogs, there's a, I was reading an article, that I think there's a border collie, a very smart border collie, and you know, he knew you know, a lot of words, like over 100 commands. He knew, he knew what the words were. My experience with training dogs is if they understand one word, it can be inserted into a sentence, and they'll respond to that word and to none of the other words in the sentence, and they would appear to people to be smart animals. Well, because a dog knows what the word sit means. The word sit means uh, get your butt down on the floor, Here's the word sit, then he sits, even if it's in the middle of a sentence. Because it's sort of like um, I, when I was trying to learn how to um, trying to learn Spanish, I'd be down in Mexico, and I'd hear like gibberish, 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 and then I'd hear a word that I knew, like toro for bull. So it'd be gibberish, 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 and then I'd hear toro, then more gibberish, and then I'd hear hombre, the word for man. And I think that's sort of how the dog experiences. The only word, I only know a few words of Spanish so when I hear uh, bueno, that's a word for good, I, I hear that and then everything else is gibberish. And the dog hears the word sit, he knows what it means, so he sits. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Temple Grandin, a professor of animal science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. She's the author of Animals Make Us Human, Creating the Best Life for Animals. Professor Grandin, I'm interested in wild animals and how they can be observed and then trained to meet certain standards desired by humans when they live in close contact with humans. Uh, humans have basically invaded their area. Well, there's been bad problems with bears and mountain lions. I mean, bears have learned that backpacks equal food, tents equal food, houses equal food, and there's very few wood houses that could actually withstand a bear trying to, you know, break into them. Mountain lions have killed some people. For a long time, a mountain lion had no idea that people contained meat. You know, now some of them have learned that. And what sets off some of this behavior is a lot of rapid movement. I mean, people go jogging in the woods. They ride bikes in the woods. Triggers prey drive. People never used to do these types of activities with rapid motion. Rapid motion sets off the instinctual prey drive. How does one mountain lion learn that from another if they don't see the first mountain lion attack a person? Well, they learn by observation. They have to learn by observation. And animals definitely can learn 
behaviors that you don't want, like dumpster diving or breaking into houses by observation. Now, they'd have to observe another animal do it. There's a situation that has been brought to my attention, actually by some people in the neighborhood where I live. They've planted a small fruit orchard in their yard, and the area has become infested by squirrels who eat the walnuts and who are now eating the fresh fruit off the trees before it's harvested. Do you have any ideas about what they could do for their squirrels to feed them elsewhere? Animals have to learn when they're young what things are food. You know, and then the other thing is why are there so many squirrels around? I mean, there's a lot of things I'd want to look at, but uh, you know, we're getting into more and more problems with the clash between wildlife and you know, suburbia. You have a few deer in your front yard. People think that's just wonderful. You have 20 deer in your front yard and they ate up all your plants, then uh, you don't think that's so wonderful. Some of the problem is an overpopulation of, of some of these animals. So other than capturing them and moving them far away and releasing them, there may not be much else that can be done? Well, of course, deer get, get hunted because we don't have the predators. You know, now some wildlife people say, well, let's put the predators back in, and now we're having problems with uh, you know, killing people and things like this. It, a lot of this is not simple, and animals do teach each other. I mean, let's say you have a lion that's uh, killed people. Uh, you certainly don't want to put him back out in the wild because they'll train other lions to, to kill people. If you're having a problem with coyotes uh, killing cattle or killing sheep, the best way to control that is you want to shoot the coyote that's actually doing the killing, caught in the act. You don't want to take out the coyote that's uh, just eating ground squirrels. That's your good coyote. You want to keep him. But the animals that have learned these really bad things, like breaking into houses and things like that, the problem is, is that They'll teach this behavior to other animals. The other animals will accompany them. The knowledgeable one sees the house, breaks in, and the others learn. And the others learn that you break into a wood house. The best way to do it is not through the door. You tear down the siding beside the door. And a bear is capable of doing that. Chipboard, chipboard, that's all they make houses out of these days. A bear can tear right through that stuff. So it's one animal habituating the other animal. One animal trains another animal. I mean, for a long time, uh, lions didn't know that, that people had meat inside them. You know, now some lions have learned that. And, and that's kind of the way that we as animals learn. Well, people have food preferences. I mean, you, you know, there's the old saying, you like mom's cooking. You know, even in people, there's preferences for things that they ate growing up. You know, in one culture, it's it, you know, it's a yummy treat. In another culture, that food's disgusting, but it's what you grew up with. So that takes us to the title of your book, Animals Make Us Human. How do they do that? Well, that title originally came from a, a study that uh, we covered in Animals in Translation about the caveman. And think about the advantages that the caveman would have gotten when he domesticated wolves and turned them into dogs. These animals would hunt for you. These animals would protect you. I mean, just think of what an advantage the caveman had that had dogs compared to the caveman that did not have dogs. Tell us about those advantages. Well, you're going to have a big advantage on getting food, for example. Um, you know, a caveman that does not have dogs to help him hunt, he's more likely to starve. A caveman that doesn't have dogs to guard his, his home is more likely to get eaten up by, you know, large predators. Similarly to the protection of guard dogs now. That's right. But, you know, just think of what an advantage if you was, you know, a small group of, uh, of people, you know, that those dogs would have given you in terms of protection and uh, helping you get food. 
in some ways, with both domesticated animals and wild animals, you've broken that down into the concepts of seek, fear, rage, and panic on the part of animals. Well, those are the uh, basic emotional systems in all mammals. Uh, There are basic emotional systems that are in the subcortex of the brain, not in the thinking part of the brain, but they're systems that drive behavior. What seeking is is that, you know, approach novelty. You know, you can put uh, some novel object out in the middle of a field and animals will come up to it. There's a tendency to approach novelty as long as novelty is not just shoved in the face of the animal. Fear is another core emotion. And these uh, circuits for these emotions have been fully mapped. In in the footnotes for Chapter 1, I went back and looked up all the original scientific studies because, you know, people might say, oh, you're being anthropomorphic uh, saying that animals uh, have emotions. Well, it's all in the neuroscience literature. The problem is is that this information has been locked up in the neuroscience literature and it's not gotten into the veterinary and, uh, you know, in the other uh, literature that the public would have, you know, a bit more access to. Uh, fear, yeah, that's what helped motivates you to not get eaten by a predator. Then you have panic, and panic and separation anxiety, they're the same thing. I mean, the dog that's home alone all the time, uh, that animal has separation anxiety. And that is actually a different emotional circuit than fear is. And then the rage, of course, and what rage does, that's what enables you to get the predator off you while he's eating you. Other uh, emotional systems are what motivate play, mother-young nurturing behavior, that would be the oxytocin system, and then, of course, sex. Can we back up a minute there on rage? You were saying that enables you to... Well, let's say a predator is trying to kill you. Rage is the emotion that makes you really fight it off. You've got a lion on top of you. In fact, in the uh, book that I, I read about mountain lions killing people, there was one person that survived, and he managed to beat a mountain lion off of him. He poked its eye out in the process. Uh, he had to be stimulated by rage in order to do that. Some of the literature for people who frequent mountain lion habitats is when you see them, make yourself look big. Spread your arms out. Don't run. That's right. Yeah, don't run is the important thing because the problem is prey drive is set off when you run from an animal like that. They're, they're stimulated by rapid motion. You know, you make yourself big, maybe yell at it, Try to just back off. If he's a lion that hasn't learned that you got meat inside, you probably have got a lot better chance. And if the lion has had that learning... You might be in trouble. So if attacked by a lion, what is a person to do? If you actually get a, a lion on top of you, everything you can do to fight it off. You don't play dead. With a bear, you play dead. With a lion, you got to fight it off. Try to poke his eyes out. I know that sounds really, really nasty, but if a lion is trying to kill you, you have to get that rage system turned on and do everything you can to fight, fight, fight once he's got you down. A bear, you can curl up and play dead. This is where there are species differences. So put your thumb on the lion's eyes and push hard. Yeah, exactly. And the guy that, that managed to get a mountain lion off of him, that's exactly what he did. And preferably both eyes at once if you can. Well, he managed to poke out one eye, and he got the lion off of him, and he survived. Otherwise, the lion would have gotten his neck and, and would have killed him. And that's what they instinctually aim for. Yes, cats instinctually uh, go right for the neck. The uh, the canids, the wolves and the coyotes and the dogs, uh, they're not so clean about how they kill things. They just drag it down and pull the guts out. But the cat, since it hunts by itself and has to 
bring the animal down quickly goes right for the neck. So taking what we've learned and what you've brought into knowledge in your books about animals, how do we employ that among our own species, among humans? Well, the emotional systems are very uh, are very similar. Also, to understand an animal, one thing you need to do is get away from thinking in language. They think in sensory. When the dog checks out the local fire hydrant, you've know, got a lot of different smells on there. He knows who's been there, or the friend or foe, or the uh, you know the dominant or subordinate. A uh, lot of information. Uh, it's sensory based, not language based. And you want to understand an animal. You've got to get away from verbal language. How do you do that? What do you look for? Well, you see, this is the way I think. Well, one of the big revelations in my life was learning that the way I think is different. You see, when I think, it's like Google for images. Okay, you were asking me about mountain lions. I'm seeing mountain lions, and you know that I've seen in movies. I've saw that I've seen at zoos. Um, I'm seeing a picture of um, what that person must have been like uh, fighting that mountain lion off. It come, my, my mind sort of works like Google for images, and that's been very useful in my work on designing cattle facilities. And I used to think that everybody thought in pictures. I didn't know that my thinking was different. And, and then finally when I wrote my earlier book, uh, Thinking in Pictures, and I interviewed people about how they think, I was shocked to find out that the way I think in pictures is different. And most people do not think in pictures quite the same way. And then that gave me a tremendous amount of insight into why I understand animals, because that's closer to how they think. Listening to you say that, I realized that when we were talking about mountain lions a few minutes ago, I was visualizing a mountain lion attacking someone and eating that person and the person trying to push their eyes out. Well, you may be more of a visual thinker, I've been interviewed by some people in radio, and the reason they're in radio is because uh, they're not a visual thinker, where they just have it strictly in words. A mountain lion was attacking a person, and they just they just have it as words. Where that, for me, when I read about it in a book about mountain lions, I, I, when I read that book, I got a pictures in my mind of exactly what was happening. When I hear the stories, I think of the picture kind of like you would see in a cartoon strip with the balloon over the character who's speaking, and then it goes on to another image. Oh, I don't get anything like that. Mine's more concrete. I mean, I see the, I see the person talking. I can sometimes hear them talking. You know, if I'm reading a book that has a lot of description, like science fiction books, and it's describing some faraway planet, I visualize that planet just like it was a movie, like watching a movie. I mean, I read a Michael Crichton book when I want to just veg out on an airplane. It's like seeing a movie about it. And much of your experience in visualization and in learning, you feel is different because you were identified as a person with autism. Well, being autistic has made my visual thinking more vivid than many other people have. There are a lot of people that have visual thinking that are not autistic. And I've talked to a number of people that work on designing equipment. And I find that most of them, if they look at the blueprints, they can see the finished structure in their mind. But they can't make it move. I can actually test run the equipment in my mind, like a virtual reality computer system. I'm finding that most people are are not able to do that. And that was something I learned relatively recently, uh, maybe only seven or eight years ago. That's pretty neat, pretty useful skill. 
yep, I can do that. And then there's other things I have a really hard time with. I don't remember a verbal sequence very well. Like if you're telling me directions to get out to the airport uh, when I'm in a strange city, if I don't write it down, I'm not able to remember more than three turns. Well, Dr. Temple Grandin, professor of animal science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? I was just sent a galley proof for a book called Perfect Rigor. It's not out yet, but the author's name is Masha. That's M as in Mary, A-S-H-A, Masha Gesson. G is in good, E-S-S-E-N, and it's about a mathematician who um, solved a very, very important mathematical theorem. He also was, you know, has um, autism, you know, or Asperger's, which is mild autism, and his whole life was uh, surrounded by just solving this one mathematical theorem. Now, the thing about people with autism is they're specialized minds. You can have a visual thinker like me. You can have the pattern thinker or mathematical thinker that thinks in more abstract patterns or a word thinker that thinks strictly in words. And it was interesting reading about how this man's mind worked because his whole life revolved around solving this theorem. And then when he finally got it solved, he just went back home and stayed home because there was nothing left to do because he'd solved the perfect theorem. That was sort of like his meaning of life. And, I mean, I get sent a lot of galley proofs. But I can tell you this one got read very carefully, marked up and underlined, and anyone who's interested in how the mind works would be interested in reading it when it's published. Fascinating uh, uh, reading about how his mind worked, how it was similar to mine, but then also different. He thinks in, like, abstract patterns. I think in photorealistic pictures. Well, Temple Grandin, before we close, is there an idea or a concept that has occurred to you recently or perhaps in the past in your life that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, one of the things I'm doing a lot of work on now is helping people that have autism, Asperger's, I work on getting good careers. You know, the thing about the autistic and the Asperger mind, it's a specialist mind, visual thinker, a mathematical mind, maybe a word mind, and we need to work up work on building up their area of strength into something they can turn into satisfying careers and satisfying hobbies because that's what's going to give them socialization with other people. You know, people on the autistic spectrum aren't interested in socializing just for the sake of socializing. They are interested in uh, talking about their favorite thing with somebody else. When I was younger, I got all obsessed about cattle squeeze shoots, and that got very boring uh, talking about that. People wanted me to design them, not talk about them. And we need to take the things that these people are interested in and figure out how they can have a satisfying career. And the thing that's sad about the guy in perfect rigor is uh, he solved the mathematical theorem. He decided not to show up to get his awards. And uh, he's just sitting at home now uh, because he thinks there's nothing else now to do in math. You know, somebody had helped him to get some other interests. Uh, he, he probably would be a lot happier now. Well, Professor Temple Grandin, thank you again for being with us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, and is the author of Animals Make Us Human, Creating the Best Life for Animals. She is also the author of Animals in Translation, using the mysteries of autism to decode animal behavior. This program was recorded on August 4th, 2009. 
The book that Temple Grandin recommends is Perfect Rigor by Masha Gasson. Radio Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.